Hello, I'm Andrew Glester, and I'm a lecturer in the Science Communication Unit at UWE Bristol. I recently started in the role, and one of the things that attracted me to working with the unit was the active participation in science communication projects. And since I've joined, one particular project has really caught my eye. That's the DRY project. Drought, risk, and you. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, drought isn't something that I think about when I think of the UK's weather. So when I found my colleagues talking about drought here in the UK, I was fascinated to learn more. Happily, the dry conference took place at UWE Bristol, so I went along to find out more. Immediately arriving at the conference, you can't help but notice that this isn't an ordinary science conference. There's music playing, there's an exhibition, but it's not your standard science poster exhibition. There are interactive exhibits. There's a film theatre showing digital stories. There's an illustrator working live, capturing the conference and putting the results up in the exhibition as it happens. There's a school book for children that's been written as part of the project. In fact, the Dry Project website, dryproject.co.uk, says that they take a unique approach because it draws together information from multiple perspectives on drought science, stakeholder engagement, citizen science and narrative storytelling to better understand drought risk. Lindsay McEwen, Professor of Environmental Management in the Department of Geography and Environmental Management at the University of the West of England, has been instrumental in the project. The DRY project is our five-year project. The objective of it was to explore how you might bring science and storing together as an evidence base to, um, for decision-making. And we've had an engagement strategy right the way through that particular project. And this conference is part of the latter stages of that, because what we were trying to do was to showcase the work that we've been doing, but also to use the conference as a way of, of continuing those conversations, but also increasing the number of people who might be in those conversations. And so that's one of the reasons why in this particular event we've been filming it, we've been capturing it through cartooning, so that actually we can share some of the thinking within this beyond the people who are just face-to-face participants in the conference. The DRY is one of four projects which was funded through the NERC Drought and Water Scarcity Programme and it was distinctive, the DRY project is distinctive in that it brings um, science and storing together. There's no other project that is looking at those sorts of interactions at a catchment scale. A lot of the projects are dealing with national level data sets and there have been, there is um, somebody who did some work on oral histories but in a sort of scattered approach across the country. Whereas what we've tried to do is to bring the evidence bases together at a catchment scale and look at the opportunities and the challenges of thinking in in a way about catchments, because that is challenging. We quickly found that catchment as a concept is quite a fluid idea. You know, hydrologically it has meaning, but actually in terms of people, it also has meaning in the people come in and out of those spaces in terms of their, their daily lives. As I took my seat at one of the tables, I found myself sitting next to Joe Garda Hansen, director of the Centre for Culture and Media Studies at the University of Warwick. For the DRY project, Joe's role was working on the narrative side of things, bringing together the stories. But her research more widely is around memory and media. Here's Joe Garda Hansen on the stage at the conference, reading from Evelyn Cox's book, The Great Drought of 1976. In the first half of July, we had a renewed burst of hope. There were signs that the heat wave might be just a hot spell and not the first phase of a Mediterranean summer. 
On the evening of the 3rd of July, 1976, for instance, the eternally blue sky grew black and overcast, the air still and humid. The storm, to our immense disappointment, went around us, but then returned for 10 minutes during the night. We awoke to a world that was fresh and bright, washed clean of the suffocating dust that had shrouded it. That evening, the thunderclouds built up again. We watched with mounting excitement as the sky grew dark and heavy. It was as though it had been dry for so long that only an enormous celestial force could make the clouds release the rain. Even the swallows were still flying high in the belief that it would never come. And then it started. A few heavy drops to begin with, and then hesitantly a little more. Suddenly the storm seemed to overcome the resistance and the rain bucketed down. All the rain we had missed in the past month seemed to come at once. We rushed out to the lorry and pulled and heaved at the heavy rainwater taps. At last we got them unloaded and dragged them into the former places under the guttering pipes from which the water was cascading onto the ground. In less than half an hour the tanks were overflowing and we were drenched to the skin. There were several moments that July when our fatalism about the weather gave way to wild optimism. One such moment was after that first thunderstorm. With the water streaming down our faces and squelching in our shoes, life looked good again. In the Midlands, the scorching summer of the previous year had been punctuated in this way by regular thunderstorms which made for a damp July. It looked like that after that thunderstorm, as though the weather might now follow the same pattern. We were wrong. The thunderstorm was an exception. The trials and tribulations of the summer had hardly begun. So what's fascinating about the drought project is the re- almost a kind of inbuilt reluctance to think about the concept of drought in a UK context. So we found that with water companies. I've seen it myself in the marketing and communications of how water companies represent their front end versus their back end, as it were. So their front end very rarely mentions drought. It will talk about water saving, water scarcity, being water smart, etc., etc., their back end will have their policy documents on drought risk. Likewise, people tend to see the UK as a blue place, as a watery place, obviously, surrounded by water. We have a very weatherized psychology, constantly talking about the weather and rain. So there's a kind of cultural perception of wateriness. And I think that's kind of in a much more global context around climate change, rising sea levels good water, bad water. And it was fascinating that one of the speakers talked about why have you called this project drought? Why are you focusing on drought? Why not water? And I think that's because it's very on message. It's on message to be talking about water in terms of brand, in terms of what the different organisations and institutions want to discuss. They're happy to talk about water scarcity, but less happy to talk about drought. Because it challenges our cultural understanding of our sense of national identity, the idea that we might be in drought would just be considered ridiculous. How can we possibly be in drought or ever become in drought or drought is something from 1976 or it only affects farmers and you have that in lots of areas I mean Florida's a really good example after Louisiana Hurricane Katrina another space that's thought of as very wet is in fact has real problems with drought 
So there's a kind of um, liquidity to our metaphors of the environment. We like the idea of flow and saturation and immersion and we talk about media in terms of channels and streams and Twitter storms and so everything is about the abundance of something watery. Never about things drying up. More from Joe later, but at the coffee break I had the opportunity to explore the exhibition more and met up with a colleague. I'm Dr Emma Whitecamp, I'm co-director of the Science Communication Unit at the University of the West of England and I've been part of the DRY project since the beginning, so for about five years now. I've been really excited and really pleased to be involved in the exhibition because it's given us a chance to think about how could we think about the research that we've done and communicate it in different ways. So we put a call out to all the participants in the project and said, look, if you've given a scientific presentation, a post or whatever and you've got some materials, we'd be really happy to put those up. So we've got a number of what I might call classic scientific posters. But then we thought, uh, what about some of the other ways and some of the other resources that we might be able to present and distribute? So, for example, we um, thought about the digital stories. They're stories that are created by, you know, just regular people uh, about their relationships with water. And so we thought about how can we present those to allow people to interact with those different sort of um, resources and, and different ways of thinking. Um, we thought about calls to action. Can we get people to respond to questions within the exhibition? Um, and then also just to present the huge range of resources that the project's produced from a book for school children um, through to leaflets for uh, allotment holders on how to save water. Lucy Goral Barnes is the artist involved in that book. It's called Dry, the Diary of a Water Superhero. And uh, we've been a small team that have co-produced a book which is about drought in the UK, targeting Key Stage 2. The end of primary school, sort of 9 to 11. Here's our character. She's been set a school project. She's feels really fed up she and very very uninspired and then she has a quite a strong relationship with her granddad who has an allotment and she gradually through conversations with him and then noticing their water use in the house she becomes interested in how much water we use the water that's hidden in things like her mobile phone her t-shirt We have a water kind of footprint of a Christmas dinner here. And then she presents at school and then again gets quite frustrated with how people aren't sort of picking up and becoming active, but kind of keeps going and eventually gets the community involved. Um, So hang on, there's water in a mobile phone. That sounds like a bad thing for the phone, not let alone... Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's the water that's taken to to produce a mobile phone Uh, or a T-shirt. So that's what we mean by hidden water, where... The, the object itself is dry and actually should be dry, but it's taken water to produce it. So we're trying to look at, rather than, you know, maybe the water... We do look at the water you sort of use in the bath, perhaps, but we're also looking at water used in production. Very strong that drinking water is not a good way of saving water. We should all stay really hydrated. We've yeah. been very clear to okay. sort of... not to give that message you know because obviously that's really important and it's about kind of trying to generate a a sense of agency in this age group they can lead on stuff we need to be listening to them more so have you had any feedback from people of that age group? yes we have taken it out and worked in schools with it and had positive feedback 
and feedback from staff and various bits of more informal feedback. People, um, you know, young people, I think, have related to this character well and, you know, like her. Yeah. So, yes. Is it something that... Do you you have a sense of whether it's a, a conversation that would be happening in this age group if it wasn't for things like this? Is it something that's a, that people no. are aware of? No, I think it's probably not and I think we do need to prompt those conversations and I think one of the things we've looked at is about myths about drought in the UK, you know, so and trying to sort of bust some of those myths so that, you know, I mean, the main one being that drought doesn't happen in the UK, you know, so it's trying to say actually it does and it will increasingly and, uh, you know, so looking at issues of water storage and Mm. as well as water use. Mm. What we're going to get is more extremes of weather so rather than raining little and often, which is obviously then that's quite easy with water management, we're going to be on a much more of a kind of feast and famine thing. So it means when it does rain, we need to be really good at storing that water and then use it kind of judiciously when it's not raining. And there are all sorts of problems associated with, you know, if it's been incredibly dry and the ground is very packed, then when it does rain, you get a huge amount of runoff anyway you know because the ground's so hard so actually drought and flood do have a connection emma whitecamp who we heard from earlier spoke at the conference about busting those myths there's a a myth that water is free which stems from a sort of lack of value of environmental resources the same sort of thing happens with air actually in that when you start to think about pollution you know where does the cost lie so again with water it's kind of where does the responsibility lie for um, delivery of the service but also for consumption what do you say to somebody who says to you that Britain is a wet country? I think Britain is a wet country, but actually Britain isn't one country in a water sense. So if you looked at, say, the north-west of Scotland, it is, you know, and the Hebrides are often quite wet, but just because they're wet doesn't mean they can't have a dry period. But if you contrast that with the southeast, which not only has less rainfall but also has very high population densities water then becomes a resource which is perhaps a bit more scarce a bit more of concern in any climate you have variation as the nature of climate and so you can have dry years and you can have wet years and you can have drought and i think the other concern perhaps is that as the climate changes it's likely that our weather will change and uh, potentially drought will become more of a significant risk when a belief is this sort of pervasive how do you go about challenging it? Well, I think it's perhaps less about confronting a myth head-on, but actually about thinking about a myth as a way of opening a conversation. See, perhaps the, um, the approach to an individual is not, oh, do you think drought is an issue? Because actually the answer is probably no. But the opening might be more to think about, well, if we think about Britain as a wet country and we recognise that actually... You know, you have wet years and you have dry years. We have floods and we have droughts. Water arrives on a continuum of, of too much to too little. Um, then we can start to open that conversation that says, well, so how are we going to think about water? How are we going to think about our own consumption? Perhaps we need to even think about how water fits within broader green agendas around climate change and mitigation strategies, but also thinking, so thinking about water as having embedded carbon within it. So the water that you use from your tap is more costly from a carbon perspective than a water butt, even if you have the water butt 
maybe to ensure yourself against drought, actually you should be using the water from the water bird all the time because that's lower impact water. Emma also told me that one of the things that they found from the dry project was that citizen science, projects where people from the community get involved in the scientific process, has proved to be a really effective way of starting conversations about drought. And as I explored the exhibition, I met one of those citizen scientists. My name's Sarah Curtis. I'm studying natural sciences with the Open University undergraduate. So I was really felt it was a great opportunity to be able to do some real-world science project. And it was a really great experience. I did it for about a year. Uh, there were 15 frames, two sites here, 15 frames each. And then there were two more sites, one in the north of England, one in Scotland. And each frame either simulated a drought condition because the frames had roofs on them that's how we simulated various degrees of drought or uh, was a control so that we could see the effect of a lack of rainfall on pasture land the site was monitored with all different kinds of weather conditions uh, humidity rainfall and sunlight lots of different things and also water soil moisture content was also monitored within the frames so we could see lots of different factors and then we went to the frames every week, sometimes twice in the summer, to measure the height of the plants, uh, how they were growing um, compared to cross, across each different frame for the different conditions. And yeah, we measured a variety of wild plants and pasture land plants and the um, functional groups as well, so we could fit them into functional groups. A functional group is a plant that fits into a group of other plants by its function. For instance, nitrogen-fixing plants, plants that uh, fix nitrogen. So um, tares are nitrogen-fixing, and they're important because they take nitrogen from the atmosphere, mm-hmm. fix it into the soil, and it's available for other plants. It's a major element for uh, plant growth, and that's really important for pasture land and the ecosystem in general. Uh, but functional groups is just something I was interested in as a learning, learning experience as well, because it allows you to draw comparisons mm. to other areas that share functional groups. Yeah. But it's a really difficult thing to apply science yeah. to nature. It's something I'm really interested in, but you haven't got a laboratory, so you can't control so many things. But it's just really interesting. And um, the equipment that was measuring the um, environmental conditions, that was quite sophisticated. So every frame had, like, computers and little dishes. And it was, I'd really like to try. You can see from the graphs there's a lot of data and in the middle of um, analysing all the data okay. to see if we can get something out of it. OK. Do you think you will get something out? I think so. In one, there's a lot of experience within the project. Um, so I think to read it in context as well is really important so it's not in a way potentially just the raw data it's sort of the experience and the data as well Um, so I hope so I really do because I put a lot of work into it yeah Uh, how how many citizen scientists were involved I was only involved in it for the last year it was going for three years I said there are three sites so there's one in Scotland and one in the north of England mirroring ours as well three different catchment areas but in my experience for our site one year I met about six volunteers so you can sort of do the maths and extrapolate it out but we're all committed quite often you know we will be there every week no matter what the weather and we've had to deal with a lot like sunstroke insect bites someone broke their ankle (laughs) not on site okay no but what i'm saying is not that was not on site but we we really kept on going you know the site was tough and then whatever else happened at home whatever we really tried to sort of keep on going Uh, okay so it's quite an endurance thing and on your knees 
measuring the height of everything and you can't put your hand down so you don't want to compress the soil and affect the site. So, well, I know there's a lot of scientific analysis going on, but presumably you could see a difference between the control and the... I'm not skilled enough to see the difference. Okay. It took me a long time to learn to identify the species. It really is very complicated. When you come down to even just 10 centimetres of soil, that is its own little mini ecosystem. And, um, and all the different plants, their different periods of flowering. Phenology, I think, is when things first flower. So that varies, and the plants have different uh, forms. Mm. You did kind of get used to the site. Yeah, I did, but I mean, I'm still just learning. I'm only an undergraduate. Another output of the Drive Project is this song, A River is a Snake, by folk singer Sharon Krauss. Among all the storytelling, songwriting, book writing, art, video making, there is science taking place. So I'm James Blake from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology and I've been working on the hydrological modelling for the bevel saline and for catchments for the dry project. There's been two aspects to it. So we've been setting up models of how river flows and soil moisture changes in the catchment over historical time periods. So roughly from about 1960s to 2014, I think, something like that. We can then also, once we've set the model up, we can then project it forward to look at future time periods. So we might be looking at things like climate change, land use change, or changes in land management. So we can look at those different scenarios, how things might be in the future, not necessarily saying any of one, one of them will actually happen, but just possibilities to kind of um, encourage conversation. There are a lot of possibilities. I think it depends on kind of people's approaches, how they... Some people are very worried about climate change. Other people are certainly less worried about climate change. I think some of that probably depends on their kind of perspective, whether they're looking in short term or longer term. Again, land use. So the Bevel Seam catchment and over, in, over in East Anglia, there's a big area of wetland restoration going on there. So there's a gradual change of land use from farming to kind of wetland, um, more kind of ecosystems interest over there. Um, and then you've got the whole water management aspect and certainly for the foy catchment down in Cornwall this is an interesting one for the drought perspective because really they weren't they weren't super interested in drought because it's a pretty wet catchment I mean they have had drought 76 84 down there but locally the stakeholders and um, the local communities are really interested in natural flood management so what I thought we'd do it'll be interesting to implement some hypothetical natural flood management measures in the model but see what impact they might have on drought as well so the whole of the water cycle the the dry side and the wet side um, because you kind of don't want laws of like unintended consequences with different things happening you might not anticipate you can kind kind of try and improve the soil structure and that holds moisture back higher up in higher up in the catchment that's good from a flooding perspective because the water's not getting into the river, so it's not causing floods down, downstream in the catchment. And it's also good from a drought perspective if you're interested in kind of increasing soil moisture, um, if you're interested in plants or crops. 
but at the same time for some droughts you actually do need a bit of runoff to get into the stream because if you hold it all back actually your low flows might get worse in a drought so yeah just looking at those kind of trade-offs that sort of thing how do you go about modeling this so there are various approaches um, depending on the different catchments so for most of the catchments in this project we've used um, I'm not going to go into all the technical detail I mean it's a distributed catchment hydrological model it's basically looking at hydrological processes over space and time so you might look at where rainfall's landing in the catchment, how it gets into the soil. Some of it will be used by plants and evaporate back up. Some of it will evaporate back up from the surface. Some of the moisture will flow through slowly through the soil, end up in streams and ends up as river flow. And there are various kind of process equations we've got behind that to try and model the response. So you can then look at how variations of those inputs over time reflect the flows and soil moisture throughout the catchment. I've got a long history in kind of doing hydrological modelling, certainly from the process side. Perhaps the difference with this project has been integrating with the arts and the social science. Certainly things like our local advisory groups where we're presenting the modelling in a very open way so we're working with people to get their local knowledge to incorporate into what we're doing and also to basically have them as a kind of a reality check, a sense check is what the model is showing is it making sense for the right reasons i mean sometimes with the model you could get it to kind of match a river flow which you've got from data but you know if it doesn't match the reality to the catchment the local people will know like perhaps in the foy the peaty soils up further north in the catchment they stay wetter for longer the mineral soils further south they dry out so that element's important also things whenever there's water management involved that's just that's not completely um, natural processes you've obviously got all those human interventions there so you're trying to capture human behavior and how that might influence a physical model that's something where it's really key to kind of get human input we need to kind of know does the reality or does the model match the reality for the right reasons another element of the project has been on taking some of the outputs from models and then how can we turn them into something that's easy to communicate to kind of the general public the community or just local stakeholders not everyone's a technical expert in hydrology so I mean I've had meetings where I tried to present things like a flow duration curve I won't go into the details here but it's it's a relatively technical kind of hydrological concept and you can just see some people they'll just glaze over at the beginning and that's fine so we then tried to distill down the essential information I actually set myself a challenge towards the end of the project could I kind of summarize some of the key findings just using text so no numbers could I just have some charts which kind of explain the concepts because there'll be some people who just want to engage with the ideas they don't necessarily want all the numbers but then at the same time underlying all those kind of summaries there are all the detailed results so it then is like a, a signpost or a gateway to, into what we've done and then the people who are really technical and are interested in the numbers they can go and delve into kind of the, the full-on results if they're interested. Can I just set you a challenge then can you give me the key findings in three sentences? <laughs> That's a good challenge. Um, key findings of the project okay got to watch out for climate change with drought risks from everything we're seeing climate change is potentially a, a, a big driver between behind kind of increased drought risk um, that's the first sentence uh, next one is management i guess 
Um, it is possible to do things uh, on a catchment basis to kind of manage drought risk, but it's really important, different sectors, so different groups within the catchment, whether that's farmers or people interested in the natural environment, they've got to talk to one another and work together. Because if everyone's doing everything in isolation, um, you'll get conflict, conflicts, you know, it's not going to work together for everyone's benefit. So, yeah, work together, communicate. And finally, I'd say, with the hydrological modelling, if you're a hydrological modeller, be open to local knowledge, be open to the community. If you're trying to model a place, go and talk to people. There's a whole massive breadth and depth of knowledge locally. Um, so if you're trying to work out if your model's working properly, ask people locally. If they've lived there for years, they've got an idea how the area works. They might not be able to give you numbers, but they've got an idea behind the concept. So yeah, incorporate that local knowledge and you can, and you'll end up with a better model. I can't really leave this podcast without sharing my own story of the drought of 1976. I was born in late June that year. My mother was in labour for several hours on a very hot day and into a still very hot evening. She asked for some water. My father, also hot, but not in labour, had drunk it all. Here's Joe Garda Hansen. Actually, interestingly, I worked with computer science and they were wanting to just see how many times the word drought was used in social media. And it is used a lot, but only in terms of a drought in goals of a football game (laughs) or a cultural drought in Doctor Who episodes. So if we do have a drought in the UK, it's because something has culturally has dried up, not because... There's a physical, real, environmental drought. Mm. And I think that's quite interesting. It's in our language. And it's in the newspaper representations of it as well. But is that because we haven't had a drought since 1976? Well, there's partly that. But it's also partly about how we've displaced drought in terms of how we've represented 76. So the reason I started with this book, Evelyn Cox's The Great Drought of 1976, is to represent two things. Those who have got the most memories of 76 either fall into two camps from my research. They're either farmers who tend not to have the means of broadcast production at their fingertips in terms of influencing national storytelling, or unless it's the archers, of course, or women. And women were bore the brunt of the domestic issues around water scarcity in 76, and they also tend not to have represented drought for us and passed that inherited knowledge on. And I think that's interesting. So if you put in 76 drought you will into YouTube, for example, you'll straight away get YouTube 10-minute, but it's from the Pathé News Archive, footage of semi-clad women in London. And that tends to be the dominant representation. You might say, oh, well, that's so 76. We'd never do that now. But actually, in the last summer, during BBC tweets, we're all of remediating, remember 76? Look, and then it was just all women in bikinis again. So I think there's a really interesting displacement in the UK imaginary around, okay, well, it's not a drought, it's just a lovely hot spell. And the urban elite, if they want to call them that, but whoever's controlling media representations is probably London-focused and and not going around looking at farms and farmers. So I think there's something important there about the means of production, who's controlling, uh, and, and what's on their agenda. And if they're quite urban, then they're thinking of it as a lovely heat wave 
and I think it's in our language, hot spell and heat wave all suggest something temporary and that in fact we will go back to the status quo and the status quo, island, wet mentality, the water comes back. I think it's a bit of an illusion when you think that 70% of, of UK land is farming land, you know, and I think that doesn't quite represent the reality. What do we do about it? I think there's some re-reading of the past required because we have lost archival knowledge we've lost certain memories of 76 we've presented it in a particular way we need to go back to archives we need to so say for example just as a a good example the mass observation archive that's based at the university of sussex one of the things it does is it collects people's experiences over a long period of time to kind of get a sense of british culture british national identity british stories and it has never sent out in all its history Um, a request for stories of drought it sent lots related to flooding and so one of the things that needs to happen is in when we're going to observe say if we're just talking about the national um, British culture then we need to be including and incorporating these particular ideas so I think there's that. I think there's some work to do around media, communication, media history. There's lots there. I mean, there's, there is stuff in the archives. It just, if you, if you contact the Guardian, say, for example, and say, I'd like to write something on drought in the UK, they'll say, tell us something that's new. You know, they want to know what's new all the time. They're not thinking about, OK, how do we rethink the past we have lots of flood memory flood memorialization flood media you know people set up facebook groups for flood memory you've got flood marks all over the walls of of most cathedrals etc and and churches and and in farmsteads etc but you have no drought memory other than say for example in in the Czech Republic, I think it's the River Elbe who has the drought stones that are re- were revealed last year and are revealed at various points and they only appear at certain points and they are warnings kind of from the past to the future if you see this stone weep because it means that you're in drought and I think we haven't looked back far enough within British cultural history so that's a kind of scholarship thing, that's a That's saying to environmental historians, yeah, it's great that you've concentrated on flooding and storm and climate change and rising sea levels because that feels very now. And that's funders funding that research because it feels like we're in this watery deluge. And, of course, insurance companies want to know the answers to that and governments do. But you have to also flip that around and say, okay, well, dry thinking and the flood drought continuum would mean... We need more environmental historians that are looking back at our longer cultural history of dryness. We heard from Professor Lindsay McEwen at the opening of this podcast, and I spoke to her again after the conference. It was a creative process. Some elements of the process took on a life beyond what I had originally conceived. So, for example, we worked in seven catchments. We had um, local advisory groups there. The language around advisory group actually is an interesting one because that's where we started, but that's not where we ended They were much more of a part of the living blood of the project. They told us stories. They were gatekeepers to particular groups. They did the scenarioing work in the the ways that we worked with other stakeholders as well. Part of the ethos of the project was about trying to move away from just the idea that expert hydrological knowledge is, is, is king or queen in all of this. 
and how do you bring other sort of evidence bases into the frame to prompt discussion with a range of different stakeholders, which include farmers, businesses, water companies, yes, environmental regulators, yes, you know, the, the statutory decision, decision makers, but also other sorts of organisations like the Canal and Rivers Trust, uh, the National Trust and all these people. Actually, if we were to try and work out how many people we've engaged with through the project who've been touched by it in some sort of way, then actually the, both at a national level and at a catchment level, that's really quite significant. Where do we go next? The next stage in the project is, is ensuring all the legacy materials are sorted. For me personally, how do we bring all this material into the same place such that people can access it and draw on it in future? And one of the things we're developing um, is still in process is around the dry utility, which has got three different elements. One is the story bank, which is a, way, a searchable database of stories that can be searched in a whole series of different ways by keyword and so on. The story map element, which is what this is quite ambitious, at least I'm finding it ambitious in mm. terms of the, the volume of work, was to try and bring storing and um, science together in panels within a, an Esri story map format. It allows different people like schools and other sorts of stakeholders to engage with some of the resources that we've generated. And the third element of that is we've loosely called guidance. But when I say guidance, that sounds a bit dry. <laughs> um, it's, it's more about what our learning has been from different elements of the project. And that combines videos and other sorts of resources and sort of quick think things about ways in which some of the learning that we've generated within dry could be uh, used in other settings. So, for example, uh, one of the things we've we've one of the bits of guidance is around um, communica communicating um, drought risk through myths, starting conversations through myths. Another one is about how you engage citizens and scientists in more hidden science. So, for example, you heard Sarah talking on the on the podcast about you know what she gained from that process, but you know it was really challenging to engage citizen scientists in something that in a sense, is not there rather than it is there, you know, in terms of looking at droughted grassland, for example. And so the cumulative evidence base that we've got in terms of how you might start rather diff difficult conversations about drought is actually huge. Mm. Our challenge is synthesising that and that in a, in a more systematic way by different, from different disciplinary perspectives. It's certainly a platform for our other work and we're already looking at how what's opportunities there that are there if you'd like to find out more about the dry project you could go to dryproject.co.uk and discover more of those stories more of the science that's been taking place and delve more into this wonderful project drought risk and you <laughs>